Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a really good opportunity to be able to come and talk about some of this stuff in the UK context. I think in Australia there's a, there are just a very small number of us who are working in this kind of area, though we are networking and in fact the Refugee Council are also starting to develop a link with higher education and uh, there's a, I mean, it's a handful, we all know each other. Um, we're a small enough group to be able to go out for dinner with each other and, and invite people from other states occasionally to, to join us. Um, but I got interested in this broad area because my background's in the research around access and participation. And when I was working in the UK, uh, for many years I was head of lifelong learning at the University of Sheffield, where we did quite a bit of work with um, different kind of refugee groups in, in the city, um, working around kind of access to part-time higher education. Um, in the context of Australia, my research has continued to be around social inclusion and the role of education and training both in, in the tertiary system, both the vocational system and um, the university system. And it's through that that I began doing some work with uh, migrants, um, with more of a focus on skilled migrants, but not only um, those who came in under the, the Australian point system. Um, and so many refugees were also um, found through those kinds of pieces of work. And the sorts of things that people have been saying today about the um, way in which migrants, whatever form of way they've entered a, a country, are often finding themselves um, experiencing difficulties in terms of um, access to employment, recognition of previous qualifications, and access to new forms of qualifications or the translation work to get their previous qualifications recognised and made appropriate to the labour markets in the new context, that that seems to be um, an experience that's very, very much the case um, in, uh, in the Australian context. And I know both is here and also I've been doing some work with people in Canada and it's very, um, very much the case there too. Um, Yet a lot of the literature on migration, uh, whether we're talking about forced migrants or, or supposedly economic migrants or non-forced migrants, that there's a lot of research that suggests that, that people who are migrating are aspirational and education is an important part of, that, uh, of, of those aspirations. And I think it's also sort of interesting in the context of of being in Britain at the moment post-Brexit, which I did manage to get to vote. Um, I have a postal vote because I've only been in Australia for, for less than six years. Um, yes, quite a, quite a shock. And um, in fact, I've just um, done a piece of writing for an editorial um, about the implications for adult education of uh, some of these kinds of things because when we start to look at what's going on in other countries across Europe, in those countries that have a more state-focused form of welfare, um, less kind of neoliberal market kind of approach to education and training and, and, and welfare, the focus in, in policy papers in the Nordic countries, for example, seems to be much more around how can we use education 
for, for social integration. Um, getting people into employment, getting people to a level that they can work in, in high-paying employment rather than being confined to the low-level parts of the, the labour market. Um, and in, in Germany, they have a system. Um, now, I, I, I only know that they have it. I don't know how successful it is, but they have a, a system of integration through qualifications. And so there's kind of, there seem to be, from what I see, sort of at the sort of superficial policy level, that shifts have gone on in the UK, as we've been hearing, to retract the rights and opportunities for people. Um, but in, in some parts of, of the European Union, things are, are shifting the other way because there's a recognition that, in fact, education is an important part of, of, of integration and, and this need to recognise people's previous experiences. And I noticed that um, in um, the previous presentations there was a reference to uh, the UNESCO document that came out last year on um, lifelong learning and that did identify globalisation and migration and the need to recognise people's qualifications and have appropriate systems in place for that as a major challenge um, for, for countries now. So, so that's a kind of preamble of kind of where, where this is coming from and where I'm coming from in the context of Australia. I will I'm happy to answer questions about some of the details of what's going on in Australia, but I, in my presentation I'm really focusing down on something very, very specific, and that is what are some of the universities doing? And I'm not even going to talk about the universities, because there is no university policy, again, unlike the kind of the policies of the federal government in Germany, there's no statement, there's no the universities in Australia will be doing this. There's no federal government statement about how to um, work with um, refugees or people seek seeking asylum. So what's going on is individual, institutional, and I would actually say it's very individual. So I'm going to talk about the experience... Ah, oh, don't lose it. <laughs> I'm going to... Oh, let me go back. <laughs> Um, that was that was a mistake. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to have to. Um... Okay, right. So I'm going to focus in on one institution and and what's going on in relation to that. And the background is that, as we've been hearing. Um, the, re the reference to Article 26, and we'll be hearing more about that this afternoon, I think it, it, that it's something which some of us feel that passionate about, that it's important that we think about the right everyone has to education. And so following on from that, the... Um, Sorry, this, I, I, I thought I had all this sorted last night, um, and 
and now I'm, I'm now making a complete mess of this. Uh. So I'm really going to have to go back to. There we go. Right now, so um. In terms of, of what, what we were trying to do, um, we um, felt that it was an opportunity because the university um, that we were able to get access to um, was involved in offering scholarships to refugees and asylum seekers. And so we threw very much an opportunistic thing based on the fact that we were already doing some work with refugees and asylum seekers, looking at career adaptability and working with NGOs and, and the kind of the different notions of, of adapted, ad adaptability. That through that, we thought there's an opportunity here to find out something about people's experiences of applying for university. So our design was to focus on just three case studies of people, so we didn't choose them, but these were people that we knew had 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 heard about the scholarship and had applied to the university. At this stage, we didn't know what their what had happened to them. We carried out um, three interviews over um, an, an hour each, three different three sets of interviews with the applicants. And we also had permission to talk with people in the institution about the policy, where this came from. So we spoke to people such as the head of admissions, the head of, of access and equity, um, the head of scholarships, and other and another person working within the um, the admissions um, system. So very much a, a kind of an opportunistic case study. In this study, we then talked to um, three Iranian refugees. They were all on what we in Australia would call a bridging visa, um, and they've been in Australia less than three years. With that bridging visa, they have no right to free tertiary education. After, the, after school leaving, they have no right to, to any, any, any forms of education, and they have only very recently been given some permission to work um, and they have some other limited um, financial support as well. Now of these three, one had completed um, year 12 in Australia, um, one had um, completed year 12 in Iran and one had already got um, experiences of, of higher education. When we interviewed them, we found that none of them um, were accepted in the university, even though, in a sense, they had formal qualifications. The stories, as I'll just give you some little bits of, of these in a moment, indicate their severe disappointment because they felt that they were qualified. And I think it raises a number of points that I think um, came up in, in the the earlier presentations about some of the difficulties and mismatch between policies around widening participation, policies around international students, and the way some of these things are, are put into operation. 
So our key findings were that um, the university had advertised for two bursaries, and these bursaries and scholarships included the full international student fees would be covered. In practice, they gave out 11, and these 11 are for the life of the degree. And these 11 included seven on a pathway programme in an organisation which is kind of arm's length from the, U the university. It's, it's a, a, a pathway college, which effectively meant that we've got nine scholarships over many, many years being at international student fee rates being covered or waived by both the university and another organisation. So in many ways, it kind of sounds very, very positive. But when we look at the kind of actual ways that this all came about, the, the university, until very recently, didn't have anything about diversity or social inclusion or anything like that in its mission statements and strategic plan at the high level. But it came about that these two scholarships were discussed through an internal review of scholarships. And at that internal review, a committed person said, why don't we do da-da-da-da-da? And everyone said, oh, that's a good idea. And so the two scholarships came about through, through that basis. But it was a high-level committee that could make that kind of decision that included the vice-chancellor. But the effect of that was that there was no serious consideration of how they were going to implement it. So you have this passion, good-heartedness happening in a particular powerful place, but the assumption was, we're an institution, we've now included, we've now got social inclusion on our mission statement, we have equity bursaries, therefore it's sorted. Um, furthermore, because there are systems in place, no consideration was given to whether there needed to be any proper information sharing, training, dissemination, that actually a completely different group of people were going to be brought into these systems. And so we sensed that there was a lack of recognition that the templates that were being used were templates that homogenise applicants into the particular types and groups of students that they've already been used to dealing with. What we found, though, not only, as we see, we went from two fee scholarships to 11, was that at the level of practice, individuals work around things. Individuals do things that would not be expected, but they do things from a position of commitment. Um, and that, I think, is why I want to link it back to this sense of, of Article 26. But it's a commitment to that at the individual personal level, not at a, an institutional systemic kind of level. So that's kind of broadly kind of what, what we, we've kind of, we came across. 
So in terms of, of this, this right to education, the actions taken by staff there, they showed this tremendous commitment by particularly professional staff, but also by academic departments to what they saw as a cause. Our interviews also showed a willingness to learn and a willingness perhaps to change, to reassess some of the systems. But that, at present, that's not happened. But there is at least a, some discussion about this. And also to try and think about how they, can, how they can work with resources, how they can manipulate them, how they can, what we're calling a kind of the wriggle room, how they can, how they can play with some of this. And so, and this is the sort of thing, the social equity manager talked about her own experiences, but her sister semi-adopted a Sudanese boy. And then we had to get help to get all of his family out here to raise funds. We've done all sorts of crazy things. So I guess I'm coming from having had a lot of conversations with this family. And you know, my sister's worked in, in with different immigrant groups. So I guess I learned a lot from her. And that's how I've got it. So we have this personal commitment that transfers into how some individuals carry out their day-to-day -day practices. And because of their position in an institution, they're able to do something. So this individual, well, straight to the top, she's the social equity manager, she can go to the vice-chancellor and talk about how scholarships can be, can be targeted. Um, and even to raise this issue of international students with different backgrounds, and it's hard to award equity for international students. But we identified at that time that there were asylum seekers who are counted as international students that would be in, in need. So, yeah, some, some positives, I think, we would, we would say there. But when we go to the students, the students see this as an institutional position. They don't see the individuals. They don't met the, the actual admissions process means that they don't normally meet anyone face to face. Everything's done online. So they experience it as being told, we want to, we're offering scholarships, which I think is um, what we were hearing about kind of raising the kind of expectations for students or potential students. But then barriers come, kind of coming down. So um, this student, Robbie, um, talks about the problems there, um, that nobody kind of cons considers the kind of things that actually they're really needing to think about in, in terms of the, the kind of the real costs of doing something like this. And as the other, another student said, they're, they're torturing students by telling them you're allowed, but then you can't. And often the can't is because, well, where are your documents? Can you score this IELTS score? Ah, you haven't got an IELTS score. Oh, well, go and take the test. Oh, that costs you $500. Oh, well, is that a problem? Well, of course it's a problem. And the staff began, once they actually started to have email communication with some of these people, they started to realise that it was a problem to say, well, why can't you go back to Iran to get those documents? You mean you can't get somebody to go and 
go to the university and get somebody to post them to you. And there were all of those kinds of things coming out in the interviews, both with the professional staff and, and with the students. For many of you, I'm sure, this is very kind of familiar kind of territory. So we felt there were real problems there of, of recognising that a policy like this doesn't just neatly fit onto, onto existing policies and procedures. And that because it doesn't just simply fit onto them, that from a student perspective or the, the applicant's perspective, what you're, what you're experiencing is what in a sense is a kind of symbolic violence that, to use that kind of Bourdieuian term, that you're experiencing it as something that's very deeply injurious emotionally. And that for people who already, for their because of their situation, are mistrustful, don't, don't have much power over their situation and much control over the situation, to be put in these kinds of situations where they don't know who is reading. The documents would be taken from them. Ah, oh, we need to get a translation of this. And translations would be done often in-house because, as the head of admissions would say, oh, we have lots of people here who speak lots of different languages. From a student point of view, or potential student, they'd be thinking, who's reading this? Who is it being given to? What's happening to my document? So tremendous worries about this kind of level of, of sort of mistrust. So as Lucy said, I had to answer that question, and every time I have to explain to them I came by boat and I couldn't bring my documents and this is what I have and I explained this several times to them and to each of them when I went to the university uh, student services. So each time there's no continuity of, of a caseworker, they are simply meeting people, well normally they wouldn't meet anybody because normally this would be done with um, say 30,000 applicants. Um, international student applicants a year, this would normally be done solely in an online way. But a number of these students pushed the boat a bit and started to physically turn up and meet with people. Incidentally, the admissions department has been moved off campus and it's now down a, a dual carriageway about um, three quarters of a mile away and they don't have a public entrance. So, and as Elliot said, it might sound bad. Well, I felt like the university didn't really, they weren't really welcoming asylum seekers. And the experience that I had, I wish somebody really knew about my specific situation at least. The amount of times I went to the university and I tried to get at least someone to give me a good answer. And the whole experience was like I tried and I got rejected and I felt really unwanted. So, coming back to the themes of the right to education, and this issue of, of the working to a template that homogenizes people. As I said, we found this sense of, of workarounds going on, a recognition of the need to, to kind of to do something because there was something really um, valuable going on here. What we had was very much this sort of bottom-up thing going on. And 
a recognition that actually we need to do something more. It's not just a case of advertising these scholarships, but we need to start working with other agencies, with the Pathways Colleges, with the schools, with the various organisations that are working with the refugee groups. And as Head of Scholarship says, that I didn't want to say no to the students. They'd asked the students in order to assess the scholarships, they did what they thought was appropriate in equity scholarships, where they can rank levels of, of deprivation, if you like. So they asked people to write a 500-word account of why they were deserving. The scholarship person was then meant to rank these, give them a score, put them to a committee and make re recommendations. They had over, um, I've got the number somewhere, they had about, I think it was 59 applications. Um, they didn't advertise this very much. Um, and the person said, as it says in there, how could, how could I say you're more worthy than this student? She suddenly realised it was a, it was a, a nonsense selection process to say that you know, your story is, is touching my heart more than another one. So she, she said, I, I, wanted to, I didn't want to take that approach. I wanted to see, let's try and support as many students as possible. And that's how they ended up being able to, to move to the point where they got 11 scholarships. As I say, the three, even though in some respects were qualified, they still didn't meet the qualification because they couldn't meet the admissions criteria, because they couldn't show IELTS, or they couldn't show the documents, and so on and so on and so on. So coming back to just a few points to, to try and kind of sum up what, what, what sense we're making of this, it raises lots of questions, I think, about the purpose of, of social equity and what's, what kind of equal playing field is being created by policies of this sort. We're starting to look at um, critical race theory as a way of starting to think, make sense of some of this and notions of kind of restrictive notions of equity and expansive notions of equity where restrictive is more about the process. Yes, we've got equity processes in place and so on, but expansive might be more about the end result, where you're trying to get to. And in relation to, to something like critical race theory, whilst there may be lots of discussion about kind of you know, what, what is meant by, by race and, and colour and so on, we're drawing on the kind of notions from people like uh, Shibwa Gu and um, Charlotte Chatterton, who talk about the way that white privilege doesn't refer to colour, rather, to a, more to a systematic um, structural discrimination in which shapes the identities and the interactions and, and kind of affects, really, to what extent particular types of of groupings and behaviours and identities are the ones which are privileged. And in this context, it's certain kinds of international students who um, are, are positioned as people to become the third export industry for Australia, or it's a particular kind of 
home and domestic student. But we're recognising from the interviews with staff and potential students that there is a recognition that, that the systems that are in place aren't working. So we're not suggesting, and I think critical race theory also does not say that individual behaviours are necessarily racist in the way that we might think of racism, but that it's a way of looking at the institutional, systematic and structural um, context. And from that, what we're really kind of wanting to draw out is the way in which some of these processes and so on, if they're not thought through, if you have this kind of policy, but you don't think it through at the, at the process level and, and work on changing those processes and think about diversity at that level, then actually what you end up doing is operating in this structurally discriminating kind of way. So at the present, um, the review on the equity template hasn't happened. Um, they're still only officially committed to two scholarships, but there is some recognition that actually, if if the demand is 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 advert or if, sorry, if the if the possibility of of scholarships like this are advertised, the demand could become um, overwhelming. And also, when you are managing this kind of level of admissions, to devote the amount of time to each individual admission, as, as has happened with these scholarships, would not be feasible. So the implications are, it does throw up, I think, a lot of things about the way in which policies like this would be developed, um, and is it appropriate to continue to treat these students as international students? There is a sense in which the university is still saying, this is how the federal government determines them, therefore that's how we have to work, rather than necessarily thinking the university has the power to, to defer fees if, if, if they wish to. Um, and there are many implications, I think, there for applying the rules to, to this particular group of, 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 of bridging hold, um, fee holders, which um, has lots of ramifications at the personal level and I think um, kind of really speaks to the, the points that we were hearing before about the emotional and the hidden um, stories and the hidden injuries going on here. So that Eliot would certainly say that you know, every time he felt positive but then getting rejected made him feel once again he wasn't good enough. So in, in going into this space, universities need to think through these potential hidden injuries that they could be um, culpable in, in creating. And as Elliot said, you know, it really broke, him, broke me down, that experience. Um, so into, finally, in just to, in terms of our recommendations, we're thinking that there needs to be um, greater connections between the universities and other providers um, there needs to be more training of frontline staff, a recognition of difference throughout the whole system, and an acknowledgement that the admissions and scholarship scheme need to work in a, a very different way to acknowledge the, the, the differences which 
we've seen coming through in these kinds of workarounds and that these things need to be formalized um, so that things like the standard template doesn't become just a one-size-fits-all and that the potential is very large so there might need to be a greater, greater debate about where does the university want to go in terms of opening up these kinds of opportunities. Um, so, that's from Australia. <laughs> Thank you very much.